it's just so confusing as a business owner that's really like deeply values doing good in the world and treating people well but then you know still being subject to all of the economic forces of the system that we sit in those things are often in conflict and they're not always reconcilable marketers love to tell you do this and you'll make more money or do this and you'll have more freedom or do this and you'll get to be more you if you do what i tell you to do your life will significantly improve The reason for this is simple. Capitalism turns life improvement into a task of consumption. We're convinced we can buy our way to an easier, more satisfying life. And that means many of us are convinced that we can work our way to the money we need to do that. Further, the more we improve ourselves and enhance our lives, the more we can use ourselves as a form of capital to reinvest in the market. As Gia Tolentino writes, selfhood is capitalism's last natural resource. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how small business owners are building stronger businesses without the shoulds and supposed tos. Now, I'm not meaning to pick on marketers here because the way we, and yeah, I'm going to include myself here, market our products and services is only one very small part of a systemic problem. The larger systemic issue is how most of us are conditioned to focus our effort on the individual pursuit of success. We focus on our individual challenges, our individual needs, and our individual opportunities. And that's great because businesses can sell us answers to the questions of individual success and the solutions to individual challenges. And when their solutions don't bring about the results we're looking for, Well, it's likely because we're just not as capable as we need to be, right? Ugh. Individualism can be insidious. Of course, just because individualism is insidious doesn't mean we don't have individual needs, goals, and desires that are absolutely worth pursuing. It's just that individualism as a system, along with the personal responsibility doctrine and the false promise of meritocracy, create a series of assumptions that ultimately pit my success against your success, my needs against your needs, my desires against your desires. We can talk about wanting business to be a win-win all we want, but as long as we're working in these systems, it's incredibly difficult to make it happen. So what that does is put our personal values in conflict with economic forces. It puts the way we want to see the world in conflict with the way the world works. Over the last five years, I've been trying to imagine and build ways of doing business that meet and exceed my individual needs, while also broadening my focus beyond only my individual success. I still have many more questions than I have answers, and I've peeled back many layers of privilege and conditioning to see things in new ways. Last spring, a new layer to peel back started to emerge. My friend and our sort of resident business radical, Kate Strathman, made it clear that many of the ways we were responding to the pandemic and resulting economic shock were an attempt at individual solutions to a collective crisis. That phrase has become a new lens through which I can see the world, the market, and my life. After all, collective crises are all around us. Whether we're talking about the climate crisis or the wealth gap or the broken healthcare system or the childcare crisis, there is no end to the challenges that we're in together as a society. 
And yet these problems are still recast as individual problems that we have personal responsibility over. And I'm going to stop there because I will admit that my mind starts to go to the dark place when I linger on these issues for very long. I want to get back to our businesses, which helps me get back to the happy place. Building a business to meet and exceed individual needs and improve individual quality of life is awesome. And what else can you do with this business if you look beyond your individual needs and your individual success? That is a really exciting question to me. What kind of impact on the collective could this business have? How can I use this business to meet other people's needs too? These questions don't have many easy answers, but they're fertile ground for imagining different ways of doing business. It's with this in mind that I want to share my conversation with Kate Strathman. Kate and I share many similar concerns about the state of online business and even the broader small business, freelance, and gig economies. As always with my conversations with Kate, this might be a little confronting at times. You might be nodding along, digging on what we're saying, and then all of a sudden feel a twinge of recognition that isn't as nice. But none of this is aimed at your personal responsibility for where we've gotten as a market or even the things you've done in your own business. Our goal is to explore some big, hard questions about how we do business and how we can take better care of each other. Stay tuned to hear us talk about the messages we consume that make it hard to imagine things a different way, why focusing on individual success causes us to devalue the care work that goes into making our businesses work, and why small business owners feel trapped between the worker class and the owner class. Plus, Kate offers some powerful questions for reframing the potential of your business and gets super pragmatic about the choices we can make without becoming a martyr for the sake of positive change. Kate Strathman, welcome back to What Works. I am really excited about this conversation. I've been looking forward to this for a while. Me too. And as I said, <laughs> you have been holding off on like texting you five times a day about all of my thoughts. So here we are. <laughs> so I think the best place for us to start today is sort of the context around who's listening and what they might be perceiving in the market, what they might be feeling in their own businesses. And by that, I mean, I think that if you ask most people who are listening to the show, they'd say that they have a higher personal value for serving others, taking care of others, as opposed to individual success. They might have a value for that as well, but it's probably not ranking as high as serving others. But so much of the structure of our businesses, so many of the messages that we are liking and then amplifying in the market really revolve around that individual success narrative. Can you describe how you see this manifesting out there in the world of small business and specifically the world of small business online? One of the ways that I've really been thinking about that you know, conundrum, maybe is the right word, is... You know, I, I see a lot, and I know you see a lot too of, and you we also both as small business owners feel this ourselves. Like I will I will name myself in the, what I'm about to say is that owning a business is really hard. Mm -hmm. It's very consuming. It's very exhausting. I bet if Sean and my girlfriend went bowling, they would like talk about how our work like takes over our lives. Yep, and. <laughs> So, you know, I think one of the things I think about, especially because I'm such a think systems thinker, and I really spend a lot of time thinking about economics and context and like 
what are the underlying structures behind that are driving like the decisions we're making and kind of what are we doing? And so when I think about that, what I see structurally is that for, especially for solo folks and for those of us that are even in micro businesses with, with employees, we're really caught between the sort of labor and ownership structure. We're sitting in both camps. What I mean by that is the, you know, we're, we're really in the trenches where our labor is directly connected to the economic viability and engine of our businesses. So we work in our businesses, our labor power is part of the commodity that is running through our businesses that makes value in the world. And but but we're also owners. And I think, you know, in terms of what we're talking about and the kinds of people that you and I most often speak to, we're not in that ownership class that is sort of character uh, a caricature of like mm-hmm. deep evil and doom <laughs> of, like yes <laughs> you know we're just trying to squeeze all of the surplus value and I can get back to what surplus value is in a second if that's useful but we're not trying to squeeze all the surplus value we can via like low wages exploitation and like trying to amass as much profit and money as we possibly can at the expense of others like that's not what we're trying to do and yet we're still subject to the structures that we are building our businesses in and the messages and the dominant forces of that are doing that because that is what the economics of our system does. It is an exploitative model. It is based on, you know, accumulation of wealth in individuals. And that by its nature is how we get hierarchies. It's how we get exploitation. It's how we get vastly unequal wealth distribution, all of those things. And so I think what, you know, one of the things I see is like, it's just so confusing mm-hmm. as a business owner that's really like deeply values doing good in the world and treating people well, but then, you know, still being subject to all of the economic forces of the system that we sit in, those things are often in conflict. And they're not always reconcilable. I'd like to get into some of the messaging that you see out there that makes this even more confusing than just it would have to be. Like, I'm I'm thinking about messages around, you know, things like getting paid to be you mm, or... Yeah. You know, the the idea that only you can do what you do and the and the monetization of the personal brand and how that ties into this sticky, fuzzy place that you've just described, where we find ourselves trapped between being the ones doing the labor and also owning the business and the different competitive forces that are at play there. I think one of the best examples that I've found and been trying to unpack in the last year around this is the work less, make more online business Mm -hmm. crew. And I probably would like blame Tim Ferriss as sort of the originator of this, but maybe, you know, DM me later if somebody thinks of a, a different genesis of this idea of like, you know, you can create individual wealth, but like do it chill. And, you know, and that's evolved. And like that message, I what I really mean, and it's ubiquitous, is any of the myriad of folks who are mess saying, make seven figures, but don't hustle, or like be chill about it. Or, you know, you can still make dinner for your kids every night, 
and wake up in the morning, your bank account will have seven figures magically. The way that I make sense of that or have been making sense of that messaging is that what it's really doing is talking about labor value and tracking to a class system that we're really familiar with. So Mm -hmm. I think part of that messaging is getting our owners out of work that isn't valued and into ownership-based wealth accumulation. This is one of the things I am most interested in right now is understanding how it is that so many of us have come to trying to escape work that we don't like, Mm -hmm. that we don't want to be doing, that doesn't light us up, but that we can all agree it's central to how our businesses run and yet not value that labor when it comes to how we pay people, how we structure their employment, or how we treat those people, you know, which kind of, I mean, this reminds me of the Rachel Hollis thing. It reminds me of, of so many things. I, I, there's, there's this idea that the people who are doing the maintenance work, the care work on our businesses, even when they are themselves business owners, because that's how so many of these structures are built, that they are not our equal. And I find it extremely troubling. Can you speak to this, this sort of class and hierarchy piece that you started to talk about there? I'm going to kind of bring this back to at least the people we're talking to, who Mm -hmm. I think if you asked them would say, no, one human isn't actually worth more than another as a base value. But I think one of the things we're talking about is how human worth gets translated through a market. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we can believe that humans are like that there aren't certain humans that have more intrinsic value than others. But what we're talking about is that different people's labor is valued in different ways. You know, one of the things to put some like economic language to this, one of the things we're talking about here in the sort of ownership versus labor type of frame is that Labor power is a commodity. So that's something that gets translated. That is something that we humans who aren't just sitting on piles of wealth, but that need to, you know, pay our mortgage, buy groceries, all of that stuff. The primary commodity that we have is our labor. So that's what we sell in the marketplace to get our needs met via money and exchange. And so different kinds of labor are valued in different ways. And I don't think I'll go into the entire like (laughs) economic thing because that feels too complicated right now. But, you know, and some of this is true, like the labor that goes into an airplane is different, kind of a higher value kind of labor than labor that goes into making like a cup of coffee. So those are those are different ways that value gets kind of transmutated through markets and into commodities. But again, some of this is then mediated through systems of oppression and structures and hierarchy. So, you know, different labor has different value in the marketplace based on like how that gets commodified and moved through commodities, but it's also overlaid with how we value different kinds of people, really. So even if we don't 
have that belief at core, it's that's still actually what's happening. So like one good example, I've been reading Sarah Jaffe's new book, A Work Won't Love You Back, which I highly recommend. But one of the notes I made from that is she talks about that when the New Deal was constructed, that domestic work and farm work, which are two kinds of work that are done mostly by Black workers, were intentionally left out of the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is the act that set originally set minimum wages and started labor protections, basically, as we know them in kind of like modern times. And that was entirely based on Southern racists and the Democratic Party making sure that that happened in that legislature. So we see that carry through to today in terms of like who gets to make what kind of money, how do we value that? I think care work is another example. You know, we've definitely seen this in the last year, like home health aides, teachers, all sorts of occupations that track traditionally as women's work. Those are all undervalued types of labor. And I I think administration in a business is care work. Like that is a type of work that is maintenance work for how a business operates. We go back to the 1950s and secretaries did that. We don't call secretaries secretaries anymore most of the time, but, but that's women's work. And it's supposed to, you know, and anything that gets, I think, transmitted as care, and this is what, you know, Sarah's book, Jaffe's book is all about, is, you know, if you're, if you're supposed to care, then you can actually call that like, well, it's love, like, why would you monetize that? Those kinds of things. So, you know, I think that's some of the like structural underpinnings or some examples of kind of like how this happens and then going back to the kind of individual genius thing and i'd be curious because you've been you've been thinking and writing a lot about personal brands lately so i'd be Mm -hmm. curious sort of your take on this but you know i I think this goes to just i would underpin it as an economic structure back to wealth creation and like individual geniuses and like the commodification of ideas and personalities and brands, those are actually, I think what's happening there is those are, those are trying to be assets. They're not actually like labor functions, even though they are like, of course it's transmitted through labor. Everything is, but I think what's, what's really happening there is like trying to turn like it's owners getting away from labor and moving into asset ownership, because that's actually how wealth is built in our economy now. It's not through a salary. Uh, nobody's right. built like that's That is not how Mark Zuckerberg made extra billions of dollars last year. He didn't put in overtime. He didn't do an extra good job at his like nine to five. That's not how you make billions of dollars. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that's really happening with the, the tension that is happening within our businesses is that we're really stuck between all these messages as owners that are telling us to move into asset accumulation because that's what capitalism wants us to do. And so things like, you know, the commodity, you know, the enclosure of ideas, IP, that's about Uh asset creation and wealth building. And so all of the labor, of course, that goes into that, your admin, the VA, the janitors at Facebook's headquarters, like all of those kinds of lower valued labor go into all of this asset and creation and wealth building. But I think that's really what's happening in there. It's like a lot of movement towards what capitalism wants us to do in the economy, especially as people that own things. Uh, it doesn't want us to labor. It wants us to accumulate wealth. And so a lot of the messaging, that's kind of how I think about it. It's like, okay, that's actually structurally what we're talking about here. Yeah. 
I think it might be helpful to kind of help people visualize exactly what that asset building or that move toward asset building looks like. When you're talking about, how did you put it? I'm not sure you use this exact phrase, but I'm going to give it to you. The commodification of genius. Yeah, I didn't. That's <laughs> We're talking a good one. about that. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I threw that together and wrote it down in my notes from like yeah. a few things yeah, that yeah. you said, but yes, we're going to, we're going to call it that. Those are the things like, well, you mentioned IP. It's like, it's turning a service into an online course. It's writing an ebook that you sell over and over and over again. It's licensing a program. So Mark Fisher, who's a theorist, coined the term capitalist realism to mean that like, we have a really hard time culturally imagining things beyond the economics we're in. Like, what would that yeah. look like? And so I think it really depends, like, how far do you want to take this? I think the outcomes of that kind of lens and structure, which is about individual ownership of ideas or company ownership of ideas. It's not about public domain. It's not about collective needs meeting. But I think one of the roots of that is like, that's still working in a kind of commodified market economy, which has certain logics mm -hmm. to it. And I don't know that while we're still in that logic that we can actually get away from a kind of supremacy culture model or an individualized wealth creation model. I think those are the things that like I would go to as, okay, but where does that get us? Because I don't, you know, there's nothing bad about having a million dollar business. Like I, we've talked about this. Like right. I love it when my clients make a shit ton of money because it means that there's a lot of resources to care for people. Like that's really great. Like having business mm -hmm. models that don't work is not great for anybody. But I think it's like, you know, we look at the pit, like we we're talking about sort of the pitches and the messages in online business. I don't know that I see anywhere in the sort of dominant, the big people, you know, the people that get a lot of the airtime and have big audiences. Mm -hmm. Nobody's saying as their primary message, build a liberated, well compensated team. Like they're not, it's just not, it's, yes. it's build the seven figure business based on your individual genius and get your own freedom and have it all kind of messages. And that's very, that's very, you know, that concentrates both all of the, I think it puts a tremendous burden if we look at it on the flip side of people having to hold all that weight within themselves as leaders. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's so much, there's a lot of great writing and thinking going on around uh, like what happens to influencers and like if your primary thing that you're selling in the world is attention for yourself, like that's so toxic. It's like, well, okay, but to what end? Like, is the end goal to, like, buy a really nice house? Like, like you know, it's, 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 it's this really about yourself and using your own individual genius, however that looks in the marketplace, to build your own wealth? Or are you trying to actually do something different in terms of needs meeting and whose needs are being met? And, I, you know, and I think what we're really talking about is, like, a fundamental paradigm shift away from... Yeah. Of, of looking at like, well, what is what is the purpose of having a business? If if that's if we're not going to have jobs, and I think, you know, I sent you an article maybe yesterday about data that there's been this huge surge in business ownership 
in the last year of like LLCs being registered, that there there looks like there's a correlation between relief funding and business ownership. But one of the ways that I've been thinking about that is, well, we've been in an extremely precarious moment on top of a precarious moment already. Yeah, it's all yeah. precarious. It's all precarious so all the way down. The like rise of the sort of, you know, gig economy, micro businesses, turn your side hustle into seven figures, like all of that stuff. I think that's a response to precariousness of like, we don't feel like we have control over our livelihoods. Jobs are shitty. Can we like actually make a living through a salary? And so there's this promise that's very individualized, like you're going to solve your own problems around this through your own individualized mm-hmm. genius that can be commodified into a business and through a marketplace. That makes me think about something that I had written about years ago, but sort of revisited in the last year as well, which is this mismatch between what people actually want and what mm-hmm. goals are mm-hmm. being sold to them. Because I think a lot of people do yeah. just really want to be a coach but they're being told that they have to do all these other things yep. in the name of stability. And because we want to escape the precarity of the moment and of our lifetimes, we're like, great, stability. Yes, that's what I want. But right. one, it's not any more stable than just being a coach. It's probably less stable than just being a coach. Yeah. Quote, yeah. unquote, just, by the way. And then second, it involves all of this labor and skill building and ways of using your time and your your energy that people don't want to be doing. So when you say, okay, maybe that goal that's being sold to you isn't actually your goal. Maybe being a coach is your goal and you can take care of all of your needs and more being a coach full time and just focusing on the needs of that particular job or that particular role, you know, depending on how you want to construct that. And so it's one of the reasons that I've started, like, especially when I'm doing like laser coaching and people come with a very specific problem, I almost always start off with, okay, why does this matter to you? (laughs) What are you trying to do here? Like, I want to build an audience. Why? I want to better develop my personal brand. Why? I want to build an online course. Why? Which is just reinforcing what you had said earlier about like, what is the purpose of having a business? What are we really trying to do here? I can speak to this in my own business. So Wonderwell you know, at its most basic vanilla language level is a bookkeeping and consulting practice. I have an art degree. I've become an accidental bookkeeping business owner. That's a whole nother story. I think I've told it on this podcast, maybe in pieces, no idea. But so one of the, I think one of my personal internal struggles with that is around my identity of like, I don't really feel like, you know, a connection to bookkeeping per se, like, what is, how does that connect to how I identify or think about myself or, you know, my mission in the world purpose? So for a long time, because I'm also really good at complexity, I've had like, you know, I've been building a business, which is extremely complicated. 
And and part of that is because I'm interested in many things and like I like the nuance and the complexity and different ideas and all of those things. You know, the the simplest way to I think build a super clear scalable business would be to say, well, Wanderworld actually only does bookkeeping for interior designers at this revenue threshold, and that's the only thing we do. And that's like, that is the simplest, Mm -hmm. because, you know, simple equals scale. You can't build a lot of complexity into scale. That's one of the laws of physics of business. So I think, you know, one of the things I've grappled with is like, well, what, how do I fit into the container of this business? It's never been about me as the brand. Like, I've never had that personal brand attached Mm -hmm. to it. I've always been sort of behind the curtains. I've never had my face on the web, like, top of the front page of the website. Like, none of those kinds of things have been true for me. But I think when, you know, one of realizations I've come to in ways that I'm kind of shifting the business this year and doing things differently is to be okay with the fact that actually that service, one... For all of the things we're talking about and like the changes that people need to make, if you don't have clear books and clear numbers, you won't be able to do any of this. Like it's one of the most undervalued things, I think, in business in terms of labor. But, you know, really when I got down to it, like my real mission is one, I want to expand entrepreneurial imagination and like really think about ways of doing business. Like that's what that's what I have to offer in the world is being a person that can think about these things and write about them and show other paths. So one of the things this year is like, well, what would actually make that more possible for me? It's not my actually doing a ton of consulting work and being super responsible for all the revenue and like holding the rest of the business back. It's being okay with the, like, if we as a team are, you know, I have super badass bookkeepers, like let's, leverage that for all of us and so you know i'm really thinking about it in terms of like what would create robust flexible livelihoods for people that is the mission of like how i think about the company there's different ways that that happens of course through revenue generation in the business but some of it was like letting go of some of the things that i felt like i could only do or had to do or like ways that my labor showed up in the business and really kind of reconfiguring that and not being so attached to like certain identities that I've developed over the last 10 years of this. There's a paradigm shift of having to sort of rethink about like, well, why am I doing this? Because I'm interviewing job candidates this week. And one of the questions I always ask our candidates is if money were no object, what would your ideal job be? And It's interesting because I think a lot of business owners would be like, well, I would love to do this, but not have to do the business part. But the reason we do the business part is because we have to get our needs met through this economic system. That changed a little bit in the last year with relief funding and increases in unemployment and things like that, that actually started to give people a sense of like, well, if we had a guaranteed income or something like that, or just some like some of our basic needs met not through our own labor power what would that look like and what would that change for us i think some of it's like the the acceptance that both we can't solve all of this within the individual containers of our business but there are different ways to start thinking about this and kind of paradigm shifts to be made and there are like there are certainly tactics and strategies none of them are quick fixes that's that's not what this work is about 
You'll hear Kate and I talk about how rethinking the purpose of your business can cause you to rethink your goals too in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. What Works is thrilled to announce the What's Next virtual retreat. So what's next for your business? There comes a point in building your business when you realize that you're spending a lot less time fixing problems and implementing new strategies than you were before. Financially, things are pretty stable. Operationally, they're mostly pretty smooth. The first thing many business owners do when they come to that realization is let out a big sigh of relief, and rightly so. You've worked hard and overcome many challenges to get here. And then the next thing many business owners do is start asking, what's next? You start to wonder just how much better things could be. Could you eliminate the parts of the business that don't light you up? Could you work with only the people who energize you? Could you simplify? Could you build a team or automate more or build an even better customer experience? These are the questions that really excite me as a coach. I love to help people envision doing business in new and different ways as their businesses mature. I love helping business owners spot the things that are fine but not great and come up with a concrete plan to improve. And I love finding the assumptions, beliefs, and mental shortcuts that keep business owners from seeing the next phase of their businesses. This summer, we are thrilled to offer the What's Next virtual retreat to guide you through answering questions like these, identifying your opportunities, and generally figuring out what's next. Together, we can assess, examine, and plan so that you not only have a better idea of what's next for you and your business, but so that you also have a plan for the concrete changes or improvements you want to make in the next six months. So here are the details. The live virtual retreat is on July 14th, 15th, and 16th. Each day will consist of two group coaching sessions, a working session, a breakout group session, and a Q&A and hot seat coaching session. There's additional support and coaching via Slack from July 7th to September 1st. This experience is designed for a small group, 12 to maybe 15 experienced small business owners. And before the retreat, you're going to receive some homework so that I can get to know you and what you're thinking about in terms of what's next for your business so we can really hit the ground running. Now, there is no specific revenue threshold or metric of success that you have to hit to participate. You're a great fit if you've been running your business for at least two years, feel financially and operationally stable, and you're starting to ask, what's next? You'll have opportunities to get feedback synchronously and asynchronously, verbally as well as via chat, and time to process before you ask questions. What's Next will be a supportive creative container for building a vision of the next phase of your business, as well as identifying at least six concrete changes you can make in the next six months to seriously up your game. Are you ready for what's next? To get all the details and register, go to explorewhatworks.com slash next. That's explorewhatworks.com slash next. What Works is also brought to you by Mighty Networks. Lee Metcalf was already considering what a digital community for her bricks and mortar shop, Top Stitch, could look like before the pandemic hit. Lee Metcalf was already considering what a digital community for her bricks and mortar shop, Top Stitch, could look like before the pandemic hit. But once it did, Lee put her ideas into high gear. 
She couldn't operate the in-person classes that were the bread and butter of her bricks and mortar business, but she could gather makers in a virtual community, host live online classes, and offer other pre-recorded lessons. And she used Mighty Networks to do it. Today, over 900 makers call Top Stitch Makers home. Membership starts at just $4.99 per month with options to add on events and classes for additional fees. Lee says that they have just six seats for classes in their Atlanta studio, and those classes would fill up with local folks. But today, they have sewing classes with people from all over the world. Mighty Networks helped Lee discover a fresh, expanded vision for her business, and now she dreams of serving thousands of makers in her community one day. What could a Mighty Network do for you and your vision? Go to MightyNetworks.com and click Success Stories to hear more about the inspiring ways creators and leaders are bringing people together with Mighty Networks. Many of us, especially in the United States, have internalized a value system that I think using the term neo neoliberal value system would be appropriate here. And which is really so much of, of what we've been talking about in terms mm-hmm. of individual success and individual wealth creation, mm-hmm. pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, taking care of your own problems. And there's the... There's the piece of that that is the problem-solving piece, the individual problem-solving piece. But then there's also the piece of that that is the individual goal-setting piece. And in my experience, sort of seeing my own thinking and my own values extrapolated out to this place of rethinking my business goals, rethinking my personal goals, rethinking business structure and and how I do business has required... uh, rethinking those individual goals as well. And not that it's not necessarily even that I've lowered the goals. It's just putting those goals in a very different context. I think the way that I've always made sense of this, and this is back to the beginnings of my business, is it it wasn't ever about and I, you know, I had a business partner at the beginning. So there was a we and we hired employees early, but, but, it, you know, I think it was always like, what do we want? And I definitely, I have personal goals for sure. They're mm-hmm. not as like linear and concrete as uh, what you were talking about. But I think, you know, for me, it's like, I, I'm trying to sort of play around with and incubate kind of these other ideas and like practices and possibilities and it's super imperfect but I think that's part of how I like make sense of is this working is like are are people being taken care of are we getting mm-hmm. there and and some of that is and I think this is really important is like yeah I have to make a salary too so it's not you know it's not a model of like martyrdom where I'm just going to make sure because I've, I've seen I've worked with those people, too, where it's like, OK, your team's paid really well. What about you? And it has to be both because that's that's how mutualism works. But, you know, I think it's really looking at within this. Within the constraints of like our culture, our economics, the way that these things have to happen, like what can we do around needs meeting? And 
I was saying this to our friend Charlie Gilkey a couple weeks ago, where like one of the weird ticks I think that's that's like nuancy about Wanderwell is and this comes through sometimes in the hiring process where we'll get applicants that are like super invested in our values and mission and stuff like that. And that's great. I don't care about that as much mm-hmm. as people might think I do. Like I'm actually really okay with folks just having a job. And and that's actually kind of that's anarchistic at the end of the day. But but part of that's like I'm not I'm very real about like what we're actually doing here, which is like trying to make a living. Because if our needs were met elsewhere, I would be spending a lot of my time differently. I'd be spending a lot of it the same as I am. And I think that's the goal of a lot of business owners is to kind of fuse. Well, I have to spend I have to spend time making money. And I also love these things. So if I put them together, then that's my eight hours of work a day that turns into 12 hours of work a day. Um, but like, you know, I think grappling with those things, it's like, I'm just, I'm very real and pragmatic about the limitations and like the container that I'm in. And at the same time, I think my, my end goals are really like, how can we take care of ourselves? Like it, it's not, re- but it's also about me too. It's like, there are certain things that I want to be spending my time on. I'm hiring an executive assistant right now. That's very uncomfortable. <laughs> for a whole lot of reasons but like you know that's that's what it's gonna take but you know but I think what we're talking about like or what I'm talking about is there's a seismic difference between building a company around a personality and persona as a brand and that being the commodity and the primary asset mechanism Mm -hmm. and having a person who best service in a business is doing the speaking and out front type of work or the visioning. And those are actually very different things, even though they might look the same from the outside. Yes. As someone who has been transitioning through that for the last five years or so, it is very different and also looks almost entirely the same from the outside. (laughs) I'm curious about that because I I know that you've been like, on this journey. <laughs> and I'm, I'm actually, I'm curious about how that has played out in terms of like your, especially with two businesses of like your labor, your brand and the businesses and like how you think about that in terms of reorienting your goals. I think it kind of comes back to one of the things that you said earlier that I actually also wanted to come back to. You said you were filtering the business goals through the question of what do we want and also are people being taken care of? And I think that for me, at the same time that I was simultaneously detaching the success of the business from the public perception of me as a personal brand, I was also reconstructing the goal of the business to not be what do I want and instead to be more what do we want? In this case, both as a team and as a community, And I think that that's probably helpful for a lot of folks as well that, you know, you may not have a team, you might not have employees, you might not have a community like I have, a community of customers who are looking to you for guidance or support or service in one way or another. But there is some we there. And if we can identify what the we is beyond us and even beyond our families, 
I think we can make better decisions structurally, marketing wise, messaging wise, compensation wise. For instance, uh, you know, in my own sort of deconstruction of, of the, the personality brand based business, I overcorrected for quite a while and tried to really just disappear and stand back and not take leadership in the same ways that I was before. And that served a purpose in that, like I, I, for my personality and my neurology needed to make that like vast distinction. And then in the last year, year and a half, realized how I could step back out in front because it was yeah. an answer to the question of what do we need? The business needed me to be more out in front or my team needed me to be more out in front. Our community needed me to be more out in front. Our audience needed me to be more out in front. And looking at it through that lens, it's like, okay, uh, again, what is the goal? What is, what's the, what kind of result am I really looking for here? And then filtering my leadership and my mm -hmm. personal brand through that thinking has given me a much better framework for doing that work and presenting, you know, sharing parts of myself and also leading in a way that creates business results and business results for other people. Yeah. <laughs> but that's what the deconstruction and reconstruction has been like for me and why on the surface, like if you don't know all that other stuff right. is going on, you just see, oh, Tara does content differently right. than she used to, or Tara uses I more than she used to. But there's not like, there is not an overt change that people would be like, oh, that's, that's different. I think one of the things we're really fundamentally talking about is how we hold power in our companies. And I think one of the other things we're talking about is how isolating that is when we're really holding on to that. And you know, we've seen this recently, like, <clears throat> base camp, like things like that, where even in companies that might seem like progressive, the still like the same power mechanisms are at play, the same hierarchies end up being at play and that those are really hard to unroot. And that's true in my business too. So, you know, I, I think some of us is like, how do we, how do we relate to the power we hold? How do we share that? How much do we share? A lot of people with teams wanting their employees to take ownership. Like that's a term that comes up all the time. And what we're really talking about there fundamentally underneath that is like who has power in an organization. And, and I've seen within a lot of businesses, and, and this is not poorly intentioned owners, like that folks want to give power and ownership away, but they're not also changing structures meaningfully to do so. In a piece that will have come out by the time this episode airs, I talk yeah. about the need to release ownership in order to feel supported, whether that's by team members or by peers or by like even a coach or a specialist that you hire. And I think that's often the missing piece, right, is that we want our team members to step up and take ownership and be right. more proactive. Right. But we're not right. willing to give up the ownership right. that we right. have over 
right. the particular type of end result that we're looking for, the particular type of process that we're doing. And I mean, oh God, there's all sorts of reasons for that. There's all the power yeah. things that you just mentioned. And there's also a severe lack of proper yeah. onboarding and proper systems documentation and proper expectation setting. And so there's the there's like the very nuts and bolts parts of that. But to, to your point, there's also this sort of soul searching that needs to be done or or should be done for best results around yeah. Yeah how much ownership am I willing to give up? How much power am I willing to share? How much do I need the end result to look exactly the way I thought it would? And yeah. how much do I need the process to be exactly how I would do it? And, you know, over the last year, working with working much closer with a lot of business owners than I have in the past and on different things, right? Not telling them how to run their businesses, but like, Here's, here's how to do your podcast or here, we will do your yeah. podcast for you. It's those things that I'm becoming intimately familiar with. <laughs> Again, it's like, yeah. you, you've, you've got to let us take this off your plate oh, yeah. for you. Oh, You're yeah. paying us to do this. One of the things I find I'm sure you do too is all that sounds like great in theory, right? Like, wouldn't you love to be able to Sure. Focus on the stuff that you're best at and not be a control freak about the stuff that you don't want to do anymore. Me do anymore. But <laughs> but at the same but I think the process of that, it's really hard. <laughs> and it's hard for team members to do that and to sort of like figure out their legs and you know how much how much ownership they really can have. And I and I think it's actually really hard because it, there's there's a real process and like an emotional component to letting go of things, especially when you've been in a personal responsibility model where like, this is your thing. It's all on you. If you fail, it's all on you. If you succeed, it's all on you. And if you're trying to sort of like unpack that and deconstruct that, I mean, that's holding power. And so... I think there's a, like a real emotional process that can happen in that it could be, you know, triggering in various ways and like create a lot of conflict too, which can be its own beast to try and figure out how to deal with within a team structure. Yeah. The other thing, there's all of the emotional components of letting go and, and kind of giving up that control freak nature as a business owner. And I think no matter how much work we've done on that already, no matter how robust our onboarding process is, 99.9% .9 of the people that we are hiring are coming from environments where their boss was to one degree or another, a control freak who wanted to own all the results. And like, these are the structures we are brought up in from age five, all the way through to however far you got in a corporate career or whatever kind of career you had before. And so we have to also have a lot of grace, I think, around guiding yeah. our team members through the process yeah. of dismantling yeah. their own hangups around doing things the way yeah. you want them to be done. All right, I think as, as we start to wrap things up here, I wanna talk about some of the concrete things that we can do to, if not make this process easier or to like, you know, snap our fingers and have that paradigm shift that we've been talking about, at least some of the things that we can put in place to create the structure for that to happen. And I am obsessed right now and have been for the last, uh, I guess, six months or so with the author Anne Helen Peterson. 
And she talks mm-hmm. about the difference between boundaries and guardrails, boundaries being personal and guardrails being structural. And I love I love that. So much of what we've been talking about already are boundaries in one way or another. It's, you know, recognizing what your personal values actually are, you know, thinking about the thought process behind that and how, you know, why you're doing things, how you're doing things. I would characterize those things as boundaries. But the but yeah. guardrails are those structural things that you put in place to make upholding boundaries a hell of a lot easier. So kind of with that in mind, what are some of the specific things that you would recommend to listeners to put in place in their businesses or to, you know, just start kind of thinking about in terms of the structural changes that they can make? So I think what we touched on this earlier, but I think mm. and I, I would call this a necessary step is to have a compensation strategy. And that includes solo business owners. So what's the strategy for paying yourself and your team? And that includes like, I think, squaring away personal philosophies around like, does everybody get paid the same? It's different labor valued in different ways. I don't think there's like a right or wrong about that, but they have different implications. You know, I think there's things that are really important around like, what's your multiplier for leadership comp to make sure it's not, you know, you're, you're not running roughshod over the lowest paid employers in your company. So those are kinds of things of just like, how do people get paid? How do you think about that and square it with your values within a business? I think making sure that owners are getting paid is super important because there's all sorts of structural problems that happen when that's not happening in various ways. So that's one. I think one of the guardrail things that I speak about frequently because it's something that happens that's we've built within Wanderwell. And I think it's coming up a lot in terms of like work from home and flex schedules and things like this is if you're going to give people autonomy over their time and their scheduling that has to be a real through line through the whole entire company. So for instance, I've seen examples of like where companies might have that in theory, but then say their clients are taught that they can get a hold of workers whenever they need. So like you have a flex schedule, but actually clients can call you anytime throughout the day. And like those things don't work together. Or the messages that you give as an owner, because how you show up in the business generally is how other people are taught to show up. So, you know, that's things like emailing your team at 11 p.m. and expecting them to reply or like how your Slack etiquette, like how asynchronous or synchronous communication happens. But like one of the things that my team talks about this a lot, because we do have really flexible autonomous schedules, is we also train our clients around that. So we don't have a phone number. The expectation is not that we're going to respond immediately. That both serves us doing focused, excellent work. So it is in service of the clients, but it's also in service of like not being in conflict with the kind of work culture and structure we have. So I think those are like really concrete examples of what a guardrail looks like. So that's another one. I think... I know this is one you love, which is get right with your employment laws. I love telling people who are worrying about whether they should hire employees or 1099 contractors that actually it's not up to them. That's like the IRS gets to decide that. (laughs) So, you know, I think that's that's one of like 
do you have contractors that are really employees? <laughs> Those kinds of things. I think there's another, I, this is a very complicated example, that, but I like it because when it's open source on the internet, so it, and it's really interesting. I've, I've used this in the equitable business incubator before, but how you treat care work in a business. I don't think this is a small step. This is a big step. There's a... There's a really interesting example of this co-op collective <laughs> called Gorilla it's, it's an important one. They're based in Europe, maybe the UK, I can't remember. And they actually have a whole system for compensating different types of work within their structure. So they have a bucket of like paid translation work. So that's the revenue that they need that's like necessary. Pro bono work. So that's, that's work that a translator would take on uh, voluntarily and initiate themselves that's not paid. And then also care work. And by that, they mean administration, like all of the sort of stuff that keeps the gears turning, but also like relational work within a business, like interpersonal conflicts or interpersonal relationship building. And they have a credit system. Mm -hmm. So like it's all based on hours, but like people track credits for different types of work across the organization. And then they're paid based on those credits. So I like it's a super complex model you can if you google guerrilla translation they have a whole wiki all of their stuff on the internet very it's a very labor-intensive model in some ways in terms of tracking and all of that stuff but it is an interesting way in which they're being really intentional about how care work is valued um and compensated within their model it's like it's kind of, it's also like an a um a, a solution to the, I call it the dirty dishes problem in collectives, which still haunts me from the communes I've lived in. <laughs> like, like who, who's going to do the dishes? Make sure, sure you value that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I love that you pointed out too that they have a wiki that is openly, publicly available, kind of explaining all of this. Because one of the other guardrails I think that's important to mention here is that it's not enough to think these things, believe these things, right. or even like think and believe right. that you've structurally right. put these things into your business. If they're not written into policy, then they don't really exist. And I think that being more intentional about documenting the things that are important to us in our businesses right. is a really important step in creating businesses that are based yep. on what we want, not us as individuals, but as yep. as teams or as communities. Yeah. And I think that we can we can look even beyond our own businesses. And I would love to see more and more and more of us making these things as public as possible to the point, you know, obviously that that makes sense and that isn't going to create other sorts of problems. But these are the things we need to be talking about more, especially for those of us who are thinking about how we translate the actual personal values we have into the ways we structure our businesses. The more we can share those policies, the more we can say here, how's this is how we're doing things. How are you doing things? What can I learn from you? the the closer we will all get to what might very well be a moving target but still is the target that i think so many of us are aiming for in one way or another what i love about the way you talk about things that are that run very counter to small business culture online and also like capitalism in general and how we've been brought up in that is 
that you are so open about the pieces that we can take on because they feel a little more accessible to us now while working toward maybe bigger changes down the line or bigger paradigm shifts down the line. And I hope that everyone listening is not feeling called out, but instead feeling like there is so much opportunity here and there is so much that I can do to make a positive impact in the ways that I run my business. And, you know, I, I, I think that's what this conversation was all about. And I hope that others do as well. So Kate Strathman, thank you so much for talking with me about this stuff. Thank you. This was fun. Well, as you heard, there are no easy answers. Imagining new ways of doing business that match our values and still function successfully in the market. It's a really tough task. And yet for my money, there's still a ton of value in asking these questions. You may or may not come to the same conclusions that Kate has or that I have, but by asking the questions, you can start to make decisions that are more intentional and deliberate. You can start to see the purpose of your business in a new light. Find out more about Kate and her bookkeeping agency, Wanderwell, at wanderwellconsulting.com. Next week, I'm talking to Shulamit Berlevtov about emotional resilience, support, and care as a small business owner. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. This episode was edited by Marty Seafelt. Get more of What Works delivered to your inbox every Thursday by signing up for What Works Weekly. You'll get a letter or article from me, plus my handpicked ideas and inspiration from around the web. Go to explorewhatworks.com slash weekly to sign up free of charge.